0: Hello and welcome to Beckett Talks, the podcast series from Leeds Beckett University. In these podcasts, we will be showcasing our diverse community of students and academics, touching on the important themes that surround universities today.
1: I I couldn't live without her, and I'm still struggling now as well, you know. This year, August, was my 40th wedding anniversary. Who wouldn't wait for my wife? Who wouldn't wait for their wives? We come from a culture in Africa that sort of thought, you know, that you marry once and you marry for life.
2: On Friday, the 12th of February, 2016, Mohammed Mohammed Ali said goodbye to his wife Fatima and left for work.
1: I said to her, like, I'm going out. I should be back by one o'clock. Would you like me to get you some bread or milk, like like this normal thing? And she said, no, I'll go shopping tomorrow. She had her standard procedure. Every Saturday, she'll go shopping. And every Friday, she'll never go out. No matter what happened, unless it was absolutely urgent or necessary, she never went out on Friday.
2: But this particular Friday, Fatima did go out, and Mohammed has been waiting almost six years for her return. I'm Tim Woodson, and in this episode of Beckett Talks, we're going to explore the strange circumstances of Fatima's disappearance, and explain what a new team of students, academics, and former police officers at Leeds Beckett University is doing to get to the truth of what happened that day. When Mohammed talks about Fatima, he describes a woman of great energy and life.
1: She was called them my girly boys. I know she adored boy George, absolutely. Uh, when he would be coming here on top of the box and things like that, oh, she, she would just tell her all of us to stay quiet. She came from Zanzibar, so she used to adore Freddie Mercury, you know, because he was born in Zanzibar. He was always colourful, and that's what it was. Fatima was always colourful, you know, very religious as well, you know. We both went to Catholic school in Tanzania, you know, so it was quite an upbringing for us, you know, that we were living with, within the religion sector of every religion, you know.
2: Mohammed was about twenty-three years old when he first met Fatima in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. In
1: UK, as you know, it was the hippie mod time, you know. The old rock and roll you know obviously my parents were really worried about me being the baby of the family you know and I had my elder brother here so they sort of said to me you need to settle down and settle down and I was like Nah, 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 nah. so my sister introduced me to Fatima you know and in the beginning she just bluntly said no I never trusted boys from Europe anyway that's that's the culture there <laughs> but slowly slowly you know I sort of convinced her you know before I came back here we decided to get engaged then you know and I came back here and after six months I went back again stayed there for six months and uh, we married she was only 18 very nice young beautiful you know she was still going to her sixth form at that time you know
2: Mohammed and Fatima spent six months in Tanzania before moving to the UK so that Mohammed could finish his studies and settle down as a couple. But it took a long time for Fatima to feel at home here.
1: She was never happy in the first six to eight months, you know. She still missed her home. She missed her parents, you know, the culture, the religion, because it wasn't religious here, you know, like I wasn't that religious. As fate happens, you know, she became pregnant with my first child, daughter, and things then started to move nicely for us, because obviously, you know, she'd become a mother, and I'd become a father, and we knew the responsibility we had to take, you know. My first daughter was born in 1984. We were both very young at the time.
2: With a new sense of purpose, Fatima was now able to fully move forward and create a life for herself and her family in the UK.
1: Yeah, once she had the first child, she settled down quite nicely, you know, and she was she, she was a housewife. She never went out to work, you know. I was finishing off my studies and working part-time in the evenings, you know, trying to support her and the family, you know, and the baby and everybody, you know. And we started making a good life here, you know. She was absolutely devout to our children and grandchildren Uh, always put us first before her and in the last 16 years uh, when my son started going to his secondary school she started going out to work so she was working for a local company here in in new haven a very good job you know uh, and she settled down quite nicely yes
2: so when Mohammed was getting ready for work at her home in New Haven, East Sussex, on the morning of Friday, 12th February, 2016, there was nothing in Fatima's behaviour that would suggest anything out of the ordinary.
1: Fatima was a very devout religious person. So on Fridays, she never went to work, you know, because Friday was quite religious for her to do prayers and everything. And uh, all those years, she she woke up early at four, 4.30am, 4, do her prayers, which she did on that day, woke me up, I did my prayers. And then she said to me, I've got your breakfast ready. I came down, it was about 4 to 7, had my breakfast and about 20 past 7, 25 past 7 I said I'm going. So I just left and that's, that's the last word I, I said. I said, see you left at 1 o'clock. Those are the last few words I said to him and that was it.
2: On his way to work, Mohammed made a small detour to the post office to pick up a Valentine's Day present that he and his son had organised for Fatima. He later returned at his usual time of 1pm.
1: As soon as I came home, I knew something was not right because usually, you know, if I come on, there'll be something, some noise, either music playing, you know, Quran playing, or I'll hear some noise in the kitchen of cooking or something. So on this day it was quite unusual. So I came in, you know, the house seemed very quiet. So I came in here straight away and she wasn't here. I shouted from from the lounge like Fatima, Fatima. Didn't hear a sound, you know. I noticed on the table here the keys, car keys, everything was here, her purse, handbag, everything was here.
2: This is especially strange. Fatima would never leave home without a handbag, phone and keys. If Fatima left the house, she would usually take her car, but that was still sitting in the driveway.
1: I first phoned my daughter. I said, look, mum's not here, you know. It's very bizarre, I said, you know, it's quite unusual. And she says, my dad, go down to the beauty salon. She might want to cut her hair or do her hair, you know. So I went down to the village here, you know, and I said to the girl, you know, and they knew us because we are the only Asians here, you know. So they said, no, we haven't seen Fatima today. She has never come in today, you know. So I came back up here and uh, I started calling her mobile, but I, I couldn't hear anything, you know. You know, it was ringing, but I couldn't get any answer. So I called my daughter again, and that's about quarter past two in the afternoon. I said, look, Farida, this doesn't sound right. And then she said, maybe she's going by bus and not taking a car. I said, well, that's very unusual. Because if she was going there, she would ask me to give her a lift. She wouldn't just jump on the bus on her own. And then she said, ring again, you know, so I started ringing again. Then I could hear the sound and it was coming from upstairs in the bedroom. So I went up there and the phone was on the bed. And I thought, that's bizarre, definitely, this is something wrong. Because three things she will never go up without, car, handbag, and phone. And that's when I started panicking. And I said to my doctor, now I'm going to call the police now. There's something, something's happened, you know. Uh, there was no forced entry in the house or anything because, you know, everything seemed normal here, you know. And that's when I called the police and my walls fell apart.
2: The police arrived within about 10 minutes and began making inquiries.
1: Two gentlemen came along and just asked me all the questions like, you know, can we go upstairs in your bedroom and everything? And they went up then and they saw the phone the way I lay, lay, I left it. I didn't touch the phone and they picked it up and they asked me some questions like, you know, what time did you come here? You know, what time did you left? And I told them and then they told me to sit down here, you know, and... Uh, they took my phone away from my hand, you know, because at that time, you know, I was really getting scared now, thinking this is something serious.
2: In cases like this, it's normal for the partner to be treated as a suspect until they can be ruled out. For Mohammed, this meant an agonising and disorienting wait until he could be told anything. And
1: then I could hear them ph- phoning somebody, you know, I don't know who they were phoning, you know. And then the next thing I know is another phone policeman turned up and that's when they said to me you know can you sit down here and don't move anywhere don't answer your landline or your mobile or anything they took my car keys away I had two cars and Fatima had one car so they took all the keys away and uh, they went outside I don't know what they went to do it you know I don't don't know and a couple of them in my gardens and then another two detectives turned up you know later on about an hour later and I could hear them going up in
2: the attic and everywhere you know As officers continued to search the house, Muhammad grew more and more anxious and upset.
1: And I was really, really scared and panicking, you know, Uh, thinking has something happened that they know that I don't know what things were just getting, you know, I was in tears and, you know, uh, you know, and then a couple of lady policemen turned up, you know, and they went through Fatima's clothing and upstairs, you know. um, went through a wardrobe and drawers and everything. Then the next thing I know is about eleven o'clock at night, my brother turned my elder brother turned up because he lives just down the road from me, you know, about ten miles away. And around about three AM, I don't know what happened, but they're they were making all these phone calls, you know, and they just told me that if I want to go to sleep, I can go to sleep, you know. But obviously I, I, I was not in the mood to sleep. And then my children started making their way here, you know. So the one from Manchester was coming here and they arrived at about 5am in the morning. My other daughter from Lincolnshire came. She arrived at about quarter to six. And my son came, I think at 3am. And they realised there was something serious. Something's happened and I had nothing to do with Fatima's disappearance, you know.
2: The vast majority of people who go missing are found or return again within a week. The police were doing everything they could to discover where she may have gone. But for Mohammed and his family, days turned into weeks, which turned into months, with still no sign of Fatima.
1: Initially, I was assigned a very good police, liaison officer, you know. And I remember she coming here every other day to make sure I was okay, you know, I was eating well. She was talking to me about being strong and everything and, you know, and saying, don't worry, we'll find her, we'll find her, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't be from my enemy. It just devastates you, you know, especially if it's your loved one or anybody, you know. Uh, You need to know whether they're safe, they're alive, they're well, they're taken care of, if they're out there somewhere. But the first week, I could hear all the police around the area, the helicopters, you know, people were actually phoning me, saying, oh, we're seeing police down the river here.
2: After a few weeks, it became clear to the police that Mohammed had nothing to do with her disappearance.
1: It's only after about a month when they were getting knowledgeable about it. Probably I'm not the suspect now. I'm probably an innocent husband, you know. It was just devastated, you know, and and they, they start telling me about what they're doing and how they're planning to search the area because we've got a rough uh, area here. Where it's quite open, you know, mountainous area here, outside here, you know, what they call the Sussex Downs, you know.
2: Eventually, a clue materialised. The police were able to recover CCTV from a house facing onto the main road, which showed a woman meeting Fatima's description heading out towards the beach.
1: The, the police lies an officer, I think, so she actually, when they came here, said, oh, I'm to find... A CCTV from a house down the village, which actually goes onto the main road, and he said, "We've asked the gentleman to give us the CCTV." And after about another three days, she came here with a copy and showed me on my video player. Can you just identify that? That's Fatima, and it was Fatima. I could say straight away because that was a clear picture of Fatima, you know. And she was just walking as if she's going towards the sea, going that way is either the the cliff or the sea, you know. And that's 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 the, that's the only one that's found initially.
2: And then nothing. The months turned into years until one day, about eighteen months later, a colleague of Fatima's thought she saw her catching a bus in nearby Brighton.
1: There was a sighting apparently. That's what the police tell me. That in one of her work colleagues saw her very briefly while she was in the bus. The, the work colleague and she thought she saw Fatima walking
2: past to another bus. Police were able to find CCTV of the sighting and show it to Mohammed.
1: Looking at that TV straight away, I said to them that I'm pretty sure 85% looking at her, at her shoulder and, and the broad shoulder, it looks to me like Fatima, but I, I can't be 100% sure.
2: This is the last potential sighting we have of Fatima. So what could have happened to her? One early theory is that she may have intended to commit suicide. New Haven sits about 10 miles from Beachy Head, a 530 foot beauty spot which is also well known for suicides. Could that have been Fatima's plan?
1: I don't know mentally how she was on that day. I, I don't know. I I do I do think as soon as my son left home, she she went even more quieter. And I know my son used to come weekend and say, Mom, are you happy? I'm leaving somewhere else, so I can still come and stay here and go every day to work from here to London, you know? And Fatima, who said, "No, I don't want you to drive every day because I'm scared of you driving on the motorway. I would rather you stay there and come and visit me once a week or whatever." You know, over the years now, after nearly five and a half, six years, talking to a lot of people, a lot of women in our community, elderly women, you know, they say sometimes women feel that way that they've lost everything once the last son goes or whatever. And she did adore her son absolutely. You know, there's an old saying: fathers are always towards their daughter, and mothers are always towards their sons. And that is that is the hardest part that me and my children cannot understand that she she could give up everything but not my son. And she left everything here. She left everything. She, she didn't, took nothing with
2: her. And aside from this, Mohammed has other reasons that mean to him, the idea that Fatima might have committed suicide makes no sense. Firstly, Fatima was an incredibly devout person.
1: Not just in, in, in our religion, but she, she was very good in even Christianity and all the other religions that she knew about, you know, that God will not forgive you.
2: Fatima also suffered from OCD and was incredibly preoccupied with hygiene. Was she coaxed into something
1: and she might have gone and something went wrong. I don't know. But then I'm thinking, no, it can't be. Because I know Fatima would never, ever let any other man, even, even with me, if I have to hug her, I have to make sure that I was perfectly clean. She suffered from OCD regarding her, because every morning, in the hour, afternoon, you know, she always stay, you know, in, in Islamic terms, they call it abluret, means hygienically clean all the time. So she wouldn't go out to meet somebody.
2: There was also every indication that Fatima was making plans for the future. A few days before she went missing, she had a long call with relatives to arrange a gift for a family wedding.
1: In our tradition, you know, the the uncles have to give gift to the nieces. You know, so these two ladies decided to buy whatever they want to buy. So she was coming here to show it to her to say Fatima, this is what we bought. If you approve it, then we'll give it. If not, then we'll change it. And police have traced it call that she was on the call for forty three minutes. So it was a quite a long call. And she, I came home on th- on on Thursday. That is the night before she went missing. And she says to me that your brother and sister-in-law will come on Saturday to show us our gift that we're going to give to our niece. I said, yeah, no problem, I'll be at home, I won't go to work, you know. So all these things doesn't add up, you know. And on that Friday morning, she texts, like, you know, greeting messages to her brother, her sister in Kenya, or her brothers in Tanzania, and a couple of her friends in London. So I don't know, you know, up to morning, everything seemed fine. What can happen in that four minutes when I left, until the moment she left?
2: So what do we know? Fatima Mohammed Ali was a vibrant, colourful woman utterly devoted to her religion and to her family. She was a person of routine, who spent her Fridays at home preparing for the weekend. On the 12th of February 2016, her husband left for work as normal with no indication that anything was amiss. When he returned at around 1.30pm, he found the house unusually empty with Fatima's car, phone and handbag left behind. Residential CCTV later caught Fatima on the corner of Denton Road and Avis Road. A possible sighting of Fatima was then recorded around 18 months later. In the early evening of the 7th of August 2017, a woman matching Fatima's description was seen running to catch a bus in Brighton, only nine miles from the home she disappeared from. Since then, there has been no new information about Fatima's case, but a new team of students, academics and former police officers at Leeds Beckett have picked up the trail.
0: So the Cold Case Unit at Leeds Beckett University works alongside victims' families, police forces and a charity to help progress long-term, sometimes suspicious missing person cases and unsolved murders from across England and Wales.
2: Kirsty Bennett is a lecturer in criminology with experience of working with Cold Case Units.
0: Within the unit we have academics, former police officers, we work with police forces, we have students from Criminology, Criminology with Psychology and Computer Forensics, and we work with members of Locate International, which is a charity, who have hundreds of members who specialise in lots of different areas within the criminal justice system.
2: The unit is open for applications from students of these three courses. And it's an opportunity for them to work on live cases in a supported setting.
0: Students get to work firsthand with the victims of missing person cases or perhaps cold case murders. And they really get to involve themselves in those circumstances to understand it from that different perspective but they also get to work with current and retired police officers. So for those who are interested in investigations or joining the police in some capacity, they get that first-hand experience that they can then apply to real-life cases where families have been really disrupted for many periods and many years.
2: This practical experience gives students a chance to use their knowledge outside the classroom and gain experience that really gives them a head start for their career. So what does the unit do when they receive a case?
0: So one of the first things that we have to do when we've received that information is ensure that it is organised, managed in accordance with our data protection policies. We then organise it to adhere to our policies for managing information And that's kind of the boring side of it. The next part of it is allocating it out to the various students, following up on different leads, making sure that it's been very thorough, it's all been fully exploited, and seeing whether there's any other options within that information that we might be able to take further. And we might be able to correspond some of that information with the information that we've already been working on. The Fatima's case that's been provided by the family the charity and members of the public.
3: If we're looking at a device, we would be looking at things such as who they were talking to, what times were they talking to.
2: Aaron Martin is the computer forensic student assigned to Fatima's case. A key piece of evidence that the team have acquired is the phone that Fatima left behind
3: if there's any geolocation data on stuff they were using, where stuff was sent from, or map-wise as well. On top of that, we would look at their text messages, anything that's tried to be deleted uh, that we can restore. So it ties in all together. Nothing can be hidden, basically. If there's something, if there's something there, then it's most likely that a digital forensics team will find it.
0: So the computer forensics team have been with us from the very start, and they work currently coinciding with the criminology students where we have an amalgamation of people with different skill sets, different ideas and different perspectives, which is really important and because we do a lot of open source research the computer forensic students are really beneficial in knowing how to search for the information where to search for it how to do it ethically and also the best ways of presenting organizing and managing that information and the phone is just one of them so they've got technology that allows them to duplicate the material on the phone extract it and give us those records
3: we will use a cloning device which would clone the sim card the day on it and the original SIM card will not be affected. We will then look at that duplicated evidence of the phone and we would go through as much as we can, potentially every single thing that is on that phone in order to contribute to the case. So her text messages, who she was recently talking to, any messages she deleted with who she was talking to, calls that were made to or from her, and any kind of like internet history or cookie tokens or what sites she visited or what social medias contain, her images, etc. If she was with certain people at certain times, any videos, anything to do with media.
2: The time it takes to compile evidence from a device can really vary.
3: It can range from potentially a month to three months or even six months. It depends on how much is there. If it's a phone with barely anything on it, we will try to find everything we can. However, if it's a device with a lot of information and data, it may take quite some time because looking through evidence bit by bit, there's so many folders and subfolders you have to go into. to find what you're looking for. So you have to know where to look and the right places to look.
2: Because Aaron and his colleagues are dealing with live evidence that may be handed over to the police to be used in court, they have to be extremely careful with how they process it.
3: If we were to find something on there, we would take a screenshot of the evidence, see where we found it. It's kind of hard because when when you start with the evidence, you have to make sure it's in an evidence bag, you have to have it kind of like a serial number, and you have to kind of photograph every single thing you're doing, the time it was found, where it was found and how you found it and how you can validate that that is what it is so, because anyone can just turn around and say oh you photoshopped it or it's it's fake. With evidence and presenting evidence you have to be very careful in how you process it and how you state it because the defendants, if they have a lawyer, they the lawyer will be looking out for any little mistakes you made. And if if they do spot a mistake that makes it look like you've made quite a big error then that could completely dismiss your case even though you've worked months on building up the evidence.
2: So what is it that Aaron and the team are looking for that might help provide a breakthrough or a new avenue of inquiry?
3: The best case scenario is that we find out who she was last talking to and who was where at what times as regards to who was in contact with her. So. If we're able to see her recent activity and nothing's been deleted, then we have a lot of potential to kind of have an in-depth look into the case. However, if there's very minimal evidence, we'll have to try our best to obviously find any content that's been deleted or try to broaden what we can see and shine the light on the, the mobile device to kind of pinpoint any valuable Information that could potentially help to resolve her case.
0: So we're in a position after Mohammed asked us to take on his wife's case, where we are liaising with Sussex Police, who are collating the case files for us to hand them over. They're being very cooperative. They're trying to facilitate developing Fatima's case, and we're very much looking at everything that's already happened with Fatima and seeing whether there's anywhere else that we can go. So we've spoken to police search advisors, um, the officers who were specifically assigned to the case in order to identify exactly where the premises were, what's been covered and what's left where we can pick up on doing that.
2: The team are already looking to experts to help flesh out the details of potential lines of inquiry. At this point, nothing has been ruled out.
0: There's a lot unknown surrounding the day that Fatima disappeared. And her last known sighting is into an area where it's not covered by CCTV. It's not covered by things like ANPR cameras for police to check vehicles. Um, Obviously, it's the middle of February. It's it's cold. There's not going to be a lot of people walking around. So you have a very open interpretation that you can make about the case from where she went and what happened to her potentially from that area. So at the moment, it's keeping everything as a possibility. One of the first things that we wanted to clarify is which areas were searched. So the area in which Fatima disappeared is is vast. It's a lot of woodlands, a lot of open spaces, a lot of water. So clarifying exactly what's been searched, how it was searched, the level of detail and depth. And then also clarifying from experts what happens with tidal patterns, movement of potentially bodies in water, all those kind of aspects in order to piece together what might have happened and where Fatima may be now if that is one of the outcomes of the case or if there was an accident and she stumbled into a river perhaps it was February, it was quite cold there'd been a storm a couple of days before so because Fatima always was in her car didn't often walk around those areas whether she came across terrain that she wasn't used to those are all options as well that might indicate if she had come to some kind of accidental harm
2: the investigation may continue, but for Mohammed and his family, much of their life is still stuck in twenty sixteen.
1: My children always said to me that they don't touch anything in the bedroom. Just leave it as it is. All I do is go up there and dust things up and hover up and I don't even now sleep in my bedroom sometimes, you know. I, I feel like, you know, maybe I may upset my son, you know. Uh many times I said to her, like, oh hey, let's have a look at mum's, you know, things in, in in the drawers in case we can come up with some clues, you know. And he will say, nah, just leave it, you know. And all the makeup, the perfume, everything, you know, everything just there. It's just, I suppose, you know, I don't know, it's mentally, you don't want to disturb somebody's item. I don't know, sentimental thing, you know what I mean?
2: The whole left in their lives from Fatima's disappearance is hard to fathom. I loved her
1: so much because she was a very beautiful lady. She was a very good wife to me, a mother to my children, you know, took care of me, you know, come rain, or shine. She was so devout, you know, and uh, always jolly, you know, always things that I wouldn't risk doing. She said, no, we're going to do this, you know, like, you know, we'll, we'll be traveling. And I said, no, I don't want to sit in this car because it looks a bit scary. And she said, no, 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 it's okay. We've got to have fun, you know, we're on holiday. So she was quite... She was also brave as well, you know, in lots of things compared to me at that time. For me, any kind of closure would be good for me in one way. I want to find her alive because I can't see her committing suicide unless unless my mind is not right at the moment. Because I know religiously she wouldn't think that way. She wouldn't because she's talked to us. She's taught us as well. She's taught my children from early age what a good human should
2: be. The last confirmed sighting of Fatima was on the morning of Friday 12th February 2016 on the corner of Denton Road and Avis Road in New Haven, East Sussex. She's slim, around five foot tall and has long black hair and was wearing black boots, a beige coat and a light white and grey scarf. There may still be people who have information that could help to piece together the events of that day.
1: I will just say that look, there's a husband, there's children and grandchildren. They're all waiting for some information. Whoever's got if they know anything, at least let the police know. At least any other international organization know that you're know that you safe and well. Whatever you've gone through, if you've got any problems, there's always some help out there. There's so many organizations who can help you. Anybody who did see Fatima that day, I was briefly please come forward because up to this point apart from the cctv we haven't got no clue we don't know from that point whether she went east west nobody knows
0: so we know that people have come forward over the years about possible sightings related to fatima or information that they have even if you think information is really minor or it might seem irrelevant please do come forward with that information because Every little helps.
1: Surely somebody must know something. Somebody must know. Especially, you know, that she is it, she's an Asian and hardly that many people around here. In fact, in my village, we are the only one anyway at that point. So somebody must have seen her. You cannot miss that person, you know? You cannot miss that person.
0: And there's multiple ways that you can come forward. So you can contact Sussex Police directly using 101 or through their website and you can ask to be put through to the missing person team. Alternatively, you can contact Leeds Beckett University directly and we do have a website that you can access as well. And there's a form on there that allows you to come directly to me and I can process your information as well.
1: And uh, so please come forward, help us, help any organisation who are trying to help us look and find Fatima and uh, that one clue can, could be our, our lead.
2: If you'd like to find out more about the Cold Case Unit or the School of Social Sciences, click the link in the description of this episode or search Leeds Beckett School of Social Sciences.
0: The Beckett Talk podcasts are released every Tuesday, so don't forget to check our social media channels on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to find out more details on our next episode. See you next week.